Dotnet Rocks, episode 1101, with guest Jez Humble. Recorded Wednesday, February 11th, 2015. Hey, 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 it's .NET Rocks. What's up, Richard? Uh-huh, you know, doing the thing with the stuff. The thing with the stuff. Man, I got some great news. Oh, hit me. Music to code by is done. I knew this. I am one of the supporters, and I got my copy. You were the, actually the last supporter. I literally waited. I was on my laptop on a Wi-Fi connection in the middle of nowhere. It was Beth Massey's wedding that I was officiating. I was out in outside with my laptop and waited till the last minute to push it in. Kickstarter. Um, it was a good deal. So anyway, let me tell you about this if you haven't been paying attention or listening. A while back, we did a show with Mark Seaman on .NET Rocks that was 1001, Getting Into the Zone. And uh, we were talking about music maybe being good to help you get, achieve a state of flow. So I did a Kickstarter to raise money to make some music, and it was very successful, and I delivered. There is three 25-minute pieces which just happened to be the length of a Pomodoro. If you go to the Pomodoro technique, you'll know what I'm talking about. Not by accident. Not by accident. And, uh, man, the results have been great. I I got advice from my followers, my backers, the whole way, yeah. saying, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? No, too distracting. I like this better. And I just found the magic formula. So Nice. And the, and the reviews have been great. So uh, go to mtcb.pwop.com, music to code by mtcb.pwop.com and you can download it. Awesome. So that's, but that's not better no framework. I'm just saying. Um, but actually we'll be giving away today in the show, uh, music to code by CD and documentary DVD. So that's, that's my news, man. What awesome. are you up to? I uh, put the Win 10 preview on my laptop. Oh, yeah? And uh, it's really nice, man. Wow, I'm impressed. More it's, than you were impressed with Windows 8? <laughs> um, I got really good. The funny part is I got really good with Windows 8. And the one thing they took away in Win 10 that I used all the time in Win 8 is the whole hit the Windows key, type in the name of something. Yep. And it'll and and then I didn't even look now, right? I hit Windows key N O T Enter. I know Notepad comes up. Windows key C M D Enter. I know there's a command window up, and right? And that's gone. It's still there, but there isn't a shortcut key, or I don't know what the shortcut key is now. There's a little uh, uh, hourglass on the toolbar, and you click on that, and you type in, and then you're good. But, but the Windows key doesn't work. The Windows key takes you pot just parts the Start menu. It, it doesn't actually put you in the place to do that. So. Well, it did that before, right? With Windows yeah. with Windows key and Windows 8, even in Windows 7, Windows key pulled up the start menu. Yes. And, but it, when you started typing, it would immediately start searching, but it doesn't do that now. Right. So I'm, I keep making my laptop twitch funny because I do that. And you can tell it's still a preview. You know, my my uh, uh, fans are running more often because there's stuff that's running in the background that's got too high priority. Like, it's all those little fit and finish tuning things that they mm. haven't quite got nailed yet. Mm. But all in all, nice version of Windows. Well, okay, good. I can't wait. I actually can't wait for HoloLens and all of that great stuff. It's going oh, yeah, to be a wonderful be thing. All right, man. Let's uh, start Better Know Framework. Awesome. So what do you got? I found the coolest Skype alternative, go-to meeting alternative this week. My wife actually found it. Oh. Uh, she was reading Twitter. She stalks my friends who tweet me and stuff and found, I think it was Jeff Palermo mentioned it on a tweet, Zoom. Zoom.us. Go to Zoom. and Zoom.us. That's it, huh? Zoom.us. And uh, Jez, I could see him waving his wait, big thumbs up. Right, Jez? <laughs> Yes. yes, Zoom. I love Zoom. It works. Telephony that works in 2015. Who knew? Not you only just... that, it works great. And the number of people that you can have on a conference is huge. I believe it's uh, 25. Wow. And then if you – and that's at 10 bucks a month per host uh, or free. Actually, if it's free, you get 40 minutes per meeting. But if you go up to uh, the pro version, which is 10 bucks a month, then it's um, unlimited length, but you can have 25 participants, whatever. Nice. And then if you go to business, which is 15 bucks a month, I believe, 
it's a hundred or two hundred participants. That's crazy. A lot of participants. Yeah. This is what we use internally at Chef, and we like it a lot. There you go. An endorsement. We're going to be using it in NAPV next as well. Awesome. That's my find. Good luck and enjoy. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1082, and that is the one we did at the NDC when we did a little panel on the state of DevOps. You know, we and we had um, uh, Jeff French and Enrico, Peter and Ben. Nice collection of folks. And Nick yep. Ramirez had a great comment, and I'm sure Jez will jump on this. Uh-huh. That's why I pulled it. <laughs> uh, I just listened to the DevOps podcast today. They started talking about DevOps being a culture and how they hated seeing job postings for DevOps people because there should be a more cultural angle like Agile instead of just being a person. However, I think in the real world, most developers don't know and don't want to know about server provisioning, cloud, performance monitoring, auto-scaling machines, replicating databases, failover clustering, load balancing, and all that other, quote, ops stuff. Why not hire someone, a DevOps person who knows that stuff and can write code, or at least wants to learn it? I think there's a difference between a developer who does application development and one who does DevOps. Just like there's a difference between a dev who does automated testing with Cucumber and Ruby versus an application developer. And what's wrong with that? Jez is chomping at the bit. Go ahead, Jez. It is. Comment. Well, since you ask, <laughs> I mean, I, I, was, I was kind of fine up to that until it's like, uh, you know, a DevOps person who knows blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, you mean an ops person? And then at the end, he was like, but wants to code and learn how to code. And then I'm like, ah. Oh. Mm. And so you want someone else to learn the skills that you have so you don't have to learn the skills that they have. Mm. And at that point, I'm like, you know, and here we have the source of the problem because there's a bunch of, I mean, you could repeat that symmetrically and be like, you know, I'm an ops person. I don't want to learn all this coding stuff. Why can't we get the developers who know all the development stuff but want to learn some of the ops stuff? Right. And, you know, just goes on. Voila, there's your problem, right? Yeah. The DevOps guy. I love that. That's funny. It should be a, a cartoon called The DevOps Guy. (laughs) (laughs) why can't we get why can't we hire someone who knows everything so i don't have to learn the stuff that i don't want to learn yeah yeah we can do that we're just not gonna pay you anymore (laughs) right (laughs) we can can see how that's gonna work out right yeah Yeah. well and and i don't need having been the ops guy too i don't you can't do load balancing and failover without some code it doesn't work Right. Failover is not mystical. If the database goes away and the backup one has to fire up, stuff's going to break. If you don't write the code for that, you don't get failover. You just get fail. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. And I see this all the time. It's like, you know, you can't sprinkle some magic security on your code. It's like the ops people don't sprinkle the magic performance enhancement on the code and suddenly it performs. Yeah. Unless I, I did this at a talk, great. I said, you know, DevOps doesn't come in a spray bottle. You can't just squirt it on developers. <laughs> All right. Well, finish that uh, comment there, Richard. Nick, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, we really appreciate it. Of course, it's going to stimulate all kinds of conversation. Already they- has. It already has. And, uh, yeah, I don't want you to learn all those things. I just want you to be aware of them and there's stuff to be done together. And we are better when we do it together. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8 and Windows 8. So let me now formally introduce our guest, Jazz Humble. He is a vice president at Chef, a lecturer at UC Berkeley and co-author of the Jolt Award winning Continuous Delivery published in Martin Fowler's signature series, Addison Wesley, 2010, and Lean Enterprise in Eric Reese's Lean series from O'Reilly, 2014. He has worked as a software developer, product manager, consultant, and trainer across a wide variety of domains and technologies. His focus is on helping organizations deliver valuable, high-quality software frequently and reliably through implementing effective engineering practices. And welcome, Jez. Thank you so much for having me on again. Welcome back, shall I say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we missed you in London. Yeah, no, it's uh I I you know, I love London. I don't get there often enough. I hope you yeah. had a good time. Yeah, we, was we did. Fantastic. It was a great time. So well, admittedly, we-, we were not actually in London, we were at the Excel Center. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> they have another airport there. That's how far away it is. And it's yeah, as Docklands. <laughs> it's as big as London, actually. <laughs> While we were there, they were shooting a uh, a few scenes from um, what was it, Richard? 
I don't know. One of the Tom Cruise Tom movies. Tom Cruise movies, yeah. Yeah, the uh, Mission, uh, Impossible. Mission Impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's crazy. Yeah, the last time I was there, I was watching weightlifting with my three-year-old daughter at the 2012 Olympics. <laughs> right. Wow. All right. That's how can good. we get back into this uh, discussion that we just started to have? You know, the, the, mis- well, the, the misconception about what DevOps is, is just as bad as the misconception of what Agile was, or, you know, the, the misconception people had about Agile, or maybe worse. Yeah. It, and, and the problem is, uh, I think, you know, our industry is set up this way, not just in the way that our companies are set up. So our companies are set up in this, this way that we all recognize, you know, the dev and the ops and that kind of thing, but also the, the whole industry. I mean, you, you learn to be an engineer. I, 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 I teach now at UC Berkeley where they have software engineering, uh, computer science courses, and they teach you the computer science stuff. Mm. And like, there's no actual real, I mean, how do you learn where to be an operator, right. an IT ops guy, let alone a DevOps person? I mean, the only way you get that stuff is by the way that all of us have learned, which is just being thrown in at the deep end and having to pick it up because there's no one else who'll do it. So, you know, how do you make that work in a scalable, reliable way as, as you know, as an education system? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really challenging part of it. And, and you know, I really appreciated continuous delivery because you focused in on a part that was important, but I think really resonated with developers. Just this idea of being able to, after you finish writing the code, a bunch of stuff should be happening, and it does, and your code doesn't matter until it's in the hands of the customer. Yeah, and that that was, you know, that was very much a pain point for a lot of people, which is why I think it it really resonated. And and it's miserable being a developer in that context. I mean, this is something that everyone knows is that you know you've worked on a project. And sometimes you finish the project and go and do something else before that thing ever goes to reduction and you never get that feedback. So I think, you know, it's, it's miserable for everyone. It's miserable being on the receiving end of that code as well. So I, we tapped into a deep source of misery that I think many, many people uh, <laughs> had felt. It's got to be a name for that misery. <laughs> Programming. Yeah. Uh, wait, no, did I say that out loud? That's not right. Uh, <laughs> well, and, yet, and now you hit on the other piece, which I think is really the big one. Do you know your software is being used? You know, what's really demoralizing is finding out a year later it never got deployed. Yeah. You know, and they, it just so it sucks the air right out of you. Yeah, it's terrible. And I, I remember a project that I was on, um, well, nearly 10 years ago. God, I'm old. Um, where we were building this, this software for a company and we, we did a great job. I mean, it came in, the project came in on time and on budget and on scope. And we'd done all the agile stuff and the TDD and the continuous integration. And we were super pleased with ourselves. You know, the architecture was nice. Uh, and then we deployed it and we found the architecture wasn't nice and it didn't perform in any way. And then we had to fix that. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I went back and spoke to someone on the team and was like, so how's that going? And they were like, yeah. That product uh, went to market and pretty much bombed and no one used it. And it nearly took the company under because they'd invested two years and millions of dollars in, in building it. And, you know, I, I kind of had this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I'm like, yeah. oh, that's that's so awful because, you know, we released it. It went out. We fixed all the performance problems, but no one wanted to buy it. So we didn't you know, build the right thing. We may have built it the right way, but we didn't build the right thing. Right. And. And, and, you know, the statistics are really horrifying. One of, one of my kind of favorite people uh, is a guy called Ronnie Kahavi. So Ronnie Kahavi is this guy who was, um, he invented Amazon's A-B testing framework or kind of was the lead person on that. Then he went to Microsoft and he's he built Microsoft's experimentation platform that's used for Bing. Um, and uh, he did a talk at QCon a couple of years ago. And he has a ton of data from A-B tests. And his data shows that two thirds of the feature ideas that people have deliver zero or negative value to, to, to users <laughs> in the organization. And it's like you, people think about the zero value case, but they don't think about the negative value case. Mm. It's like we made things worse for our customers. And yeah. not only did you do that, there's the opportunity costs of not building something that would have div- delivered value. There's the cost of maintaining that thing forever mm. in yeah. production because you never delete features. And there's the additional complexity you've added to the application, which slows down the rate at which you can add new features. So it, it kills you. So we've not only managed to increase our costs, but drive down revenue also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Woo. Congratulations. Good job. Somebody's due for a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and the worst thing is, it's not because people are dumb or they're evil. It's just because, like, you don't know. I mean, everyone's doing their best. And, you know, yeah. this is the problem. This is one of the things in, in Lean Enterprise that I, I bang on a lot because it's so important. It's like, no one's evil. No one's dumb. Everyone's trying their best. It's just the system is constructed in such a way that you, you never get that feedback and so you don't know what's going on. Do we start with some simple instrumentation? You know, I think that's an excellent idea. Um, and I was involved in the State of DevOps report last year um, that was uh, Puppet Labs, uh, me, Gene Kim, Nicole Forsgren. Uh, and we found that, you know, people who make business decisions based on monitoring information, uh, you know, that is very highly correlated with much higher IT performance. Uh, I think that's absolutely you know, getting some monitoring, making sure everyone has access to that monitoring, you know, don't need to raise a ticket or something. And then also not just monitoring your service stats, but monitoring, you know, if you can, the extent to which people actually use the features that you're building. Mm. And it's always, I think it's the piece that's missing most of the time. Like we all have some kind of deployment strategy. It may not be a good one, but we have, <laughs> right? We have some kind of operation strategy that, yeah, we run the system. It may be rebooting our every hour, but we have one. But actually having, well, there's always some kind of feedback mechanism back for how features are being used. But usually it's just opinionated or somebody telling you how much your software sucks in the hallway. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that's very DevOpsy. You know, to fix that problem, to have actual monitoring of your features requires developers and operations people to work together. Um, there's a great story from Etsy where uh, basically John Allspore worked with his team to make a monitoring framework that was so simple that you could increment a counter with one line of PHP. So he built StatsD, and the whole premise of StatsD is, you know, as a developer, they're like, oh, it's too complicated to do monitoring. And he's like, no, it's not, man. This one line of PHP will like fire a counter and it's super easy to add to your code. Uh, and and that, that caused, you know, part of the culture change around actually monitoring the use of features there. You know, where I've seen that effect too is with tools like uh, preemptive analytics and the other kind of uh, tools that interlace into IL and .NET where I don't have to write any code. In fact, I don't even have to tell the developer. I can add this into an existing DLL and start getting method calls out. So I actually know what was called, how often it was called, how long it took to run, like basically method profiling. But it's just because of the way .NET is constructed, I can do it without involving devs at all. Can you it's, overdose on that kind of, on that amount of data coming back, Richard? That's always what happens. Yeah. You just get, you are under the tidal wave all of a sudden, actually filtering down. And I think you got to run into the same problem with counters, Jez, filtering it down to what's important information. What can we act on? Yeah. That, that's true. I think that's probably step two is, you know, you get, you, 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 you know, you get the crack and then you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then suddenly there's bad, bad outcomes in your life. And you need to think about how you can actually balance uh, the, the metaphor runs out at this point, probably, probably for a good, good reason. Um, but at some point you've got to actually filter out what you can act on. And that's absolutely right. It's like not just data. And, and this is something Eric Reese talks about, you know, not just vanity metrics, actionable metrics, metrics right. that specifically make you feel bad about something which you should change. I know what to do when this goes up and I know what to do when this goes down. Right. And, you know, it's not just metrics that are like, we have a bajillion visitors to our site this month. It's, you know, uh, there are, I mean, a lot of metrics that you see that are business metrics go up and to the right. And you specifically want to look for metrics that make you make you feel uncomfortable. Right. Well, it, it depends on who's asking too. When he, I've, I've pushed a, uh, a senior exec to admit, I need some good news. Okay. I can find you a line that goes up and to the right. Right. You know, did <laughs> you actually want to change something? Ah, that's a different number. Now we got to look somewhere else. <laughs> do, do, don't these metrics all come down? You know, funny you were saying developers and operations have to get together to start instrumenting, but aren't these measurements all management numbers? These are money numbers. Um, I mean, ultimately, it should translate into money. Uh, this is something that Ronnie Kahavi says in his talk that you're looking for, like, I mean, customer lifetime value or uh, some kind of larger metric uh, that, that's kind of business relevant. So, yeah, I mean, in the case of for-profit, it's going to be money. In the case for, of a not-for-profit, there may be other things that you look for, but, you know, you should be looking for one metric that's the, the metric that you care about. And this is why, you know, it's not just exactly as you say, you know, it's not just about getting the metrics. Um, there, there's a lot of complexity to this. Um, so, for example, I mean, you, you're, you're not just looking at whether someone visits uh, a, a 
a page or whether they visit how many searches they get, you're looking at, okay, across the lifetime of a user interacting in a session, you know, do they actually get to the end result you want? Um, and so you need to give them a cookie. You need to trace their journey through the site. You need to make sure they see some certain combination of A-B tests uh, that don't interact with each other. And there's a, you know, designing online experiments. Uh, there's a lot of skill and art to that. And, and my big problem is uh, one of the things that we try and address in the book is, you know, no one teaches this. This is not part of the canon. Right. Uh, it, uh, and and that's that's a huge gap. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know Microsoft's lucky they've got you know Ronnie Kahavi there, and he's done a bunch of papers and talks. But you know it's it's definitely not kind of part of the wider culture on how we build software. Well, are there absolute principles that apply in the DevOps world, or does it does does it always depend? <laughs> I I think for online experimentation, there's a pretty solid set of basic practices and techniques um, that that you can use as a starting point. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, you're not starting from nothing. You're not just making it up. You can take a bunch of stuff and say, we're going to start here and, and then evolve. Yeah. And I guess that's part of this is always starting points. Although again, instrumentation seems to be a great one because people generally, like you said, people are generally good. They want to do the right thing. And when you give them actual metrics, they tend to want to do it. Right. And it, it you know, it's great because as a developer, I, you know, it's really exciting to see people using your stuff and people interacting with it, or, or maybe depressing in some cases. Um, but but you know, at least you can do something about it if you're living in a kind of continuous delivery world where you can push your changes out. Uh, you know, having the information and then having the, the power to to cr- actually do something about it, I think, is actually very compelling and it's actually very empowering. I mean, one of the things I think you know, the whole point of Agile was getting developers and business people to to interact more effectively. Uh, and I think this is one of those things where before developers were kind of taking orders that were tossed over the wall to them, here's, here's a mechanism that lets developers be involved in, in business decisions and designing experiments and working what works and what doesn't. And that, that can be pretty cool. And, and now DevOps is just more of the same, getting operations involved in the same loop. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the thing. I mean, people have said, well, it should have been, you know, product DevOps or DevSecOps or, and, you know, uh, the answer is that it should be all of those things. All of those to bring. Things. Yeah. I did a show over on the run on run as radio, which is the IT show with Gene Kim just recently. And he was talking about the proceedings from his conference in October, right. uh, which was a DevOps conference. And the, the sort of top things were better engagement with management, better automated testing. And, uh, and, and better infosec. And I said, Leo, so from a DevOps perspective, what we're worried about is not dev or ops, but management testing and infer- and security. <laughs> so you mean everything else? Everything else, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's real. Um, and, and, uh, if you look at where the DevOps movement started off, it was, you know, companies like, Etsy that were, you know, was a, was a startup and companies like Amazon, which wasn't a startup, but specifically re-architected and, and redesigned their systems and their organizations so they could move faster. Um, you know, they, these are all companies where they, they integrated all of those different pieces together and, and made it work as a whole. Awesome. And so when, I mean, your, your continuous delivery book was clearly aimed at the developer trying to get software out in the world more effectively. The right. Lean Enterprise book, I read the intro that's online about the whole Numi story, which is a classic. I think they made a movie about it, where here's this horrible factory that makes some of the worst cars in America, and, and GM shuts it down. Toyota sort of takes it over, retrains the same people, and makes the best cars. Yeah. Yeah. I heard exactly. I, and I love that story because it just indicates that, you know, it's a system problem and a management problem. Uh, you know, and this is true in, um, you know, the way we deal with things going wrong with human error, bad apples, people doing things wrong. You know, almost all of the time, that's not the problem. People are trying to do their best, but they're working in a system which has been set up in a way that they just can't. Um, and, and so, you know, th- this is what, Continuous delivery was engineer focused. Lean Enterprise was basically me trying to help a bunch of companies and my co-authors, uh, Joanne Molesky, Barry O'Reilly, uh, trying to help companies adopt continuous delivery. And the problem was never that, you know, the developers didn't want to do test automation or that, uh, you know, the operations people didn't want to, uh, help build services that, you know, actually worked from day one. It was that they were operating in a system which made it almost impossible for them to do that. And that's right. what the new book addresses. 
Hmm. I've never, I've never found a people unwilling to get things better, but there's always something else. Like there's people aren't obstacles because it's fun. It's because <laughs> there's something else going on and you need to figure what that is. Like I feel more like these days I'm a marriage counselor than anything else. It could be so <laughs> subtle too. It could be the wording of a, a label somewhere, you know, that people are responding to or not responding to. I heard a great story on Invisibilia about, uh, I think it was Invisibilia, a podcast, about the Facebook and testing and, you know, the experiments that were going on and what they're, the kind of insight that they have into what people respond to. It was around um, when somebody reports a picture, you know, they usually report all sorts of pictures. They looked at after Christmas this year and they they went through all these pictures, humans, and found that a lot of pictures of people just standing around or with their dogs were reported for all sorts of crazy reasons. And when they called people back, they found out it was because uh, they didn't like the picture. It was embarrassing. Hmm. So they put up a little thing that says, when you see this picture, how does it make you feel? And one of them was embarrassed. The other one was, you know, whatever, you know. And nobody clicked that. But then they say... What is it about this picture that you don't like and change the wording to it's embarrassing and a huge uh, increase in the responses for that because the picture was embarrassing, not they were embarrassed. Just a little it's was all it took to make people use that part of the software. It's just incredibly fascinating how, you know, little wording and things like that can change how people use your app. Yeah, and I think that's pervasive in in organizational culture as well. You know, little things that you think as a manager, you know, insignificant can have a huge impact on the way that people behave in your organization. I mean, one of my favorite books of the last five years is uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is behavioral economics uh, and kind of dives into detail on all the kind of subconscious biases that, you know, are just part of the way we think. Um, And it's when you have groups of people, they just get magnified and kind of yeah. spiral out of control and, and affect everything. So you could think you're doing the best job in the world and, you know, something that you're saying and you're just not paying attention to it can have this kind of outlandish effect. And gets a long way away from the actual problem. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's, there's, there's a whole piece of actually trying to diagnose um, what really is the problem in the system that's causing these behaviors. And, you know, lots of people, you know, when things, we notice these problems when things go wrong, right? You know, mm, yep. you, you can you can deal with dysfunction. Uh, you know, that's part of daily life until things go wrong. And then what happens when things go wrong? Uh, well, you know, if you're unlucky, you work in an organization where the problem is human error and we find the human responsible for the human error and fire them or punish them or tell people to try harder and, and do better in mm-hmm. future mm-hmm. rather than actually saying, well, you know, that the human is the starting point and we need to find what it is in the system that is you know, leading the humans to to behave in this way. Because again, you know, most people in a crisis situation will try and do the right thing, but they don't have the right information. They'll do things which will have unexpected catastrophic consequences they couldn't probably have known. Um, I mean, one of my favorite things from Agile is the the retrospective prime directive, yeah. um, which says, you know, every time you start a retrospective, you should say these words, uh, and I can't remember exactly what they are, but there's something along the lines of, we honestly believe that everyone did the best job they could given their skills and abilities, um, the information at hand and, uh, you know, the, the environment they were in. And I think, you know, you, you always have to start there. Everyone's trying to do their best, but, you know, we're working in difficult situations and in crisis, in a crisis, this is, this is when things go wrong. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to flip on the Laughometer IoT data stream. This comes from instrumentation in our mobile app that tells us how many people are laughing at my middle of the show jokes. <laughs> All right, let me turn this. Let me flip the switch here. Wait a minute. <laughs> Did it turn itself off? <laughs> what? I, I'm getting nothing. I'm, I just like the little clicking noise. That's great. Doesn't seem to That's be pretty working. Good. <laughs> Oh, wait, there's one. What? There's one. That must wait, be- it's me. <laughs> it was you. Oh, there's two, me. Uh, it's actually time to give away a copy of Music to Code by. Three 25-minute quiet, groovy instrumentals designed to get you into a state of flow and stay there. So see what all the fuss is about. 
Uh, .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with music to code by. Just check it out at mtcb.pwop.com. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Christopher Lofberg. Uh, congratulations, Christopher. Yeah. Yep. And uh, we're also going to give Christopher a copy of the Blu-ray documentary on the making of Music to Code By, because, Ooh. you know, we have to have something else to give away. For sure. And I haven't seen that yet. I'm excited. Well, it doesn't exist yet. Well, there you As go. As of no this recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's coming later. But uh, But there it is. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to join to win. Jazz, we also ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? So this is actually something I'm doing right now. I am buying solar panels. Really? Uh, so oh. I think solar panels counts as technology. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Cool, man. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I'm not going to do a product plug, but I'm going to do a, a business model plug, which is that right now in a bunch of states, including California, where I live, uh, there's a bunch of companies which will basically give you a loan to buy a complete install and the payments on the loan are less than your electricity bill and you sell electricity back to the grid and it's awesome and they'll service your solar panels for like 30 years and maintain them and so i kind of saw this and i'm like i would be insane not to do this so i'm, I'm totally doing it we're going to have solar panels on the roof uh and we're going to reduce our bill and it's going to be awesome yeah it's all about the subsidy in california because they those guys have got some interesting challenges for power yeah. In Connecticut, we have subsidized solar as well. In fact, there's one company, and their ads are all over Facebook, that uh, claims that they're completely free. Everything gets installed for free. You don't pay for your panels. And, uh, you know, there's got to be a catch somewhere. But Well, so, so this is the same. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a zero down payment. And basically, instead of paying your electricity bill, you're paying back the loan. Yeah. And the loan repayments are lower than your electricity payments. That's neat. So I'm and like, every any time I get a loan, I'm like, I'm getting a loan. That makes me nervous. And then I'm right. like, but I'm not paying my electricity bill. <laughs> yeah. So where would the five grand go then? It doesn't sound like you need the money. Well, you know, uh, I don't <laughs> like loans. They make me nervous. So I'm going right. to pay back my loan. <laughs> Just pay it off right now. And then you don't have to pay your electricity bill either. So no. are you saying that the solar power would completely remove your dependence on the electric company? I mean, over the course of a year, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously in winter, it's not so good and you have to suck energy off the grid. And then in summer, uh, you have a surplus and you sell it back to them. So basically, it equalizes over the cost of the year. Hmm. That's got to be a lot of solar panels or you don't consume a lot of power in your house and don't have an air conditioner. Right. Yeah, I don't have an air conditioner. There you go. The biggest power suck of them all. Yeah. Yep. We, we did a whole show on this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm almost three years ago now. Might be time for part D. Yeah, you sort of review some of the changes that's happened in the space. But yeah, solar panel costs have gone way down, but they still take up a certain amount of area to generate enough power. All right, Jazz, I got a, I got one for you here. And that is, you, you must come across this experience all the time. You know, once your customers know that you can hook up all these dials and bells and switches and reports and dashboards and things, they, they, they want control. And how much control do you give them? You know, that's developers. That no, I'm talking about the users, you know, the the managers. Oh. They want they might want to see a number and be able to turn a knob and to be able to crank something up or down or you know what I'm saying? Uh, do you ever get that that uh warning sign that goes off that's like, you know, how much data is too much data and how much control is too much control? Yeah, so uh, I mean that's a that's a very interesting question. I want to separate customers and users. So like yes. the business people who are the managers in your business making decisions versus the users of your products, and and those are very two different and yeah, very interesting propositions. Definitely talking about the managers. Okay, so one of the things that we didn't write in the continuous delivery book, but I had an epiphany about later, was this idea of decoupling deployment and release. So deployment is putting a build into an environment. 
release is making features available to users. And normally, kind of in the old world, they're coupled. So the way we achieve release is through deployment. Uh, and so I think in the new world, what you see is people are using like feature flags uh, to basically, you know, you're putting stuff into production all the time, but it's launched dark. So you dark launch your functionality. No one can see those features. Uh, and there's a knob that you can turn up and down to change how many users are exposed to that feature so you can do A-B testing. And so I think like that's the ideal. The, the reason that deployments are often so awful is that they get coupled with all the politics around release. And so we want to get away from that. But what that means is you have a bunch of dials and knobs that the business can use to, you know, experiment with feature ideas and that i think is actually pretty cool you know within limits obviously you know i mean one of the things that you do to make experiments cheap is you make functionality that doesn't scale and so you know you only want to expose that to a small proportion of your users so there's you know limits around all those dials and knobs to keep everything safe but i think you know having those dials and knobs available to, to the business is actually you know pretty cool is another piece of this and i even go back to continuous delivery on this being able to to fail quickly, that when something, your stuff's going to go wrong when you're experimenting, how fast can you recover from it? And, and and now these days, when I'm talking to folks, we're talking recovery in seconds is fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and here's the thing, those same knobs that you're using for, you know, A-B tests, you can also use for, uh, you know, switching off features that are problematic. Uh, or, you know, if you're facing high load on your system, you can switch off some expensive features that are sucking up a lot of resources so you can use it to manage variation. So this whole feature toggle pattern has a bunch of different uses, both for business and for operations. Right. Um, and, and, it, and it's super powerful. So, yeah, I mean, you do not really want to be doing a rollback to remediate an outage. That's like one of the most risky things you can do. What you want to do instead is instrument your production environment so that you can manage it in real time. Is this one of Allspa's sort of apocryphal stories? Was Flickr changing their homepage, and the and the whole the, the whole company's freaking because that's it was it was a super Spartan like Google esque homepage, and now they wanted to make it really rich. And it wasn't that they didn't want to do it; it's that how do we do this and not crash horribly on the day we roll it out? Mm. Yeah, I, I thought I'd heard all the Allspa apocryphal stories, but <laughs> apparently I haven't. But <laughs> well, and that was the one where. So they started rendering the page without showing it to the user with a, with a knob so that operations could get a feel for how much load the complex page was actually going to cost them before it ever got showed. They could shut it off and on and they could measure it. So they knew how much stuff to provision. So the day they actually rolled out the cool new homepage, it didn't crash. Yeah. And I, I have a, I have a story from Facebook that's very similar, which is the Facebook chat widget. Um, that was rolled out behind the scenes. They had an Erlang backend. Uh, and what they did is they put JavaScript into the user pages that would send messages as if the users were chatting, but the users never knew. And so they load tested Facebook chat using all the people who were logged onto Facebook, huh. uh, you know, using this JavaScript to, to load the system and they could see how it performed in real life. And then switching it on was just replacing that JavaScript with the JavaScript that actually rendered the widget. And then switching it off was replacing that, that widget JavaScript with the test harness JavaScript. Nice. They just, hmm. When you just say we're going to test in production, you get pitchforks thrown at it's you. It's true. I mean, look what happened last year with all that hubbub around Facebook's uh, psychological experiments. You know, yeah. But you got to do it. You got to do it right. I mean, you're just doing the measurements, but there's no other way to simulate some of this stuff. Like I've written load tests of all kinds for a couple of decades, and always knew I was writing lies to some degree. <laughs> Yeah, it's complex systems. They don't behave in linear ways. And, you know, there's no substitute for doing it in production. But I mean, this is the thing. It depends on your frame of reference, right? When I came along and said, so you're deploying once every three months uh, and that sucks. Uh, so you should deploy once a day. And people thought I was insane. You're insane. Uh, and they were insane. right, but not for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so and I think it's kind of the same thing. It's like you know, uh, you should test in production. Well, not if your production system is is very hard to manage and it takes you days to fix outages when they go wrong. No, you shouldn't test in production. But mm. if you can make it so it's safe to fail uh, and so that you can very uh, you can limit the consequences of bad things happening in a very effective way and you can respond quickly to changes, then actually there's some advantages to doing that. 
So maybe, yeah, isn't this the question actually, how do we get to a place where we could be testing in production? Uh, that's the million dollar question. I think, uh, I, I think that the big thing is it's an architectural constraint. To be able to deploy rap rapidly and frequently, uh, to be able to deploy safely, to be able to make changes safely, that's architecture, right? You have to right. design with this in mind. Uh, you know, people talk about scalability and, and security. Well, guess what? Deployability and resilience and these things have to be architected in. You can't spray on the magic DevOps fairy dust uh, and have, you know, unicorns romping around your data centers um, doing of rose smell poops you have to actually you know design it and so this is the problem is like most people in real life have horrible kind of big balls and mud in production where everything is very tightly coupled and and quite flaky and and you need to be incremental about it mm. um and it actually, was enough just to build the feature i don't want to have to make it reliable and safe too are you crazy <laughs> Where, where's yeah. my bonus for that Right. <laughs> and you want it to work as well? <laughs> what? What? That's going to cost talk. you. <laughs> but I, but I, I sort of get the implication now that, that, that these are just things you, the same way you're expected to spell the, the tags correctly. And like the, the, I, I've got questions on Twitter here of like, how do I do this on top of everything else I'm doing? It's like, well, you, you kind of right. gotta. It's part of the job. Right. Coach and I mean, compile too. When when yeah. you roll out a new feature, if it's a significant feature, do you um, have a, a boolean that you can flip on, on a server somewhere that just turns it on and off? So that, or or would you rather roll back to the previous version? No, I think you you got the boolean there. I mean, you got the feature flag there to turn it to turn it on and off. That's absolutely right. And I think you know R Richard's point about developers complaining about all this extra stuff they've got to do. Um, one thing that I recommend that everyone read is Steve Yege's platform rant. And you know, if you've got show notes, then it would be great to have that in there. So For Steve sure. Yege was this guy who worked at Microsoft. Uh, sorry, worked at Amazon, and then went to work at. Um, somewhere else i can't remember anyway he was working at amazon uh and then he went to work at google that's right and then he basically wrote this long screed about how awful amazon was except for these kind of couple of things they got right and one of them was you know they built a platform and the developers are responsible for operating it and the developers used to whine that you know only a tenth of my job is writing code now now i have all these other things to do mm. and stevie was like yeah that kind of sucks but guess what that's your job yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> that, so, I mean, Steve Yeg, I'm a big fan. Are you talking about his drunken blog rants? Yeah, his platform rant. Yeah, well, he's. I mean, he's got a few of them, right? Right, yeah. But so if you type Steve Yeg's platform rant into Google, this is what you get. I love it. Well, we'll definitely add that to the show notes. But it's like, yeah, this. I think you're also expected to wear pants, right? And, <laughs> like, this is just part of the job. Well, Billy Hollis says it all the time. Your job isn't to write code. It's to provide a solution. And you right. need to provide the best solution you can possibly provide. Yeah, it's about outcomes. And, you know, th this is a problem. Another thing that gets me hot under the color is productivity and, like, productivity metrics. And, you know, we all know that lines of code are dumb. Um, but, you know, people still kind of think in that way. They think about yeah. output rather than outcomes. And actually what you want to do, you know, I, and I still get this. People are like, well, what's what's wrong with measuring output? And you're like, well, you know, if you have two developers produce a solution and one of them does it in a thousand lines of code and one of them does it in 10 lines of code, which is the better developer? You know, and the answer is clear, right? And, and so like what you want to do is do the least possible amount of work to achieve the biggest possible outcomes. Right. And if you are coding all the time, maybe you're coding too much. That's right. And, and that's why it pays to keep up on stuff, you know, because there's tools coming out all the time that can do what you used to do with a lot less effort and do it a lot better than you could do manually. Speaking of that, can we talk a little bit about Chef and sort of the whole context around? I mean, you're clearly involved with them these days. Uh, Simon Timms was asking on Twitter about the re how you saw the relationship between uh, Chef and Puppet and Docker uh, in the Microsoft space, because these are all, you know, non, very non Microsoft tools, much more in the open source space, but they're all seem to be connecting to Azure these days. Yeah, that's true. And actually, um, you know, Chef has done a ton of work. Uh, for people who don't know, Chef is a tool that 
is for uh, infrastructure management to help you manage your, I mean, Facebook uses it to manage the configuration of their servers in, in, in their data centers. Uh, and, and we actually have done a, a lot of work with Microsoft. Microsoft um, has come out with desired state configuration, which I think is really cool bit of technology. And Chef has worked very closely with, with Microsoft to make sure that um, Chef and, and desired state configuration work together very, very effectively. Um, and so I think, you know, Azure and and the, and the Microsoft platform has has been doing a, a lot of very interesting work in this area. Uh, and um, you mentioned Docker. Docker's announced that there's going to be support for for Azure coming soon. Um, yeah. And I think you know it's it's really a case that all of these things you need all of these things. You know, I, I hear it all the time. What about Docker? And it's like Docker's great. Docker's fabulous. I really love the idea of developers targeting a container rather than targeting a platform. But ultimately, you know, you've got to build the platform that orchestrates the containers and that allow them to, you know, you know, you've got to have SNTP and storage and, and networking and like a whole bunch of other stuff has to work together in order for your containers to actually, you know, do something. Um, so all these things are going to work together and, you know, people have a very zero sum attitude towards uh, a bunch of these tools. And I think, you know, I'm super excited by containers. I'm super excited by Azure and desired state configuration. Uh, and I think, you know, all of these things together with tools like, uh, chef uh, are going to make things considerably better and easier. I think we're just getting started with containers. I think that's really going to be the de facto way we deploy servers in the future. I don't see yeah, any I downside it's there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and, We've been talking about grid technology for a number of years now, and I think really, you know, containers are like it's grid technology, but actually made useful for real life. Mm. Yeah, it's it, and it could, it definitely containers aren't done yet. Docker clearly has led the way. I've been researching a lot, figuring out what shows to make on this, and finding a bunch of other container approaches. But this, I need a VM, but I don't want the OS in it. I, or I don't want the platform pieces in it. Like, just give me the secret sauce of this particular app in a container. That's a really interesting way to think. I describe it as having the power of an operating system, but the weight of a process. Interesting, yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very clever. But, you know, I, I want to loop back to the lean enterprise size because I think it's the thing that everybody's ignoring. I, when I'm When I'm actually in the field and I've been working in the field more lately – the guys who hire me are the directors of IT and the senior devs and guys like that. And they're really annoyed with me that I'm constantly talking to their boss or hire. <laughs> Just because it's like, if if we're not getting management level buy-in, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Do we really have these guys on board? I'm, I'm wondering how you think in terms of talking to management about a DevOps practice or about changing the way we build software. Yeah, uh, I I have exactly the same experience, um, and the reality is, I mean, you're right. You need to get buy-in from the top because here's the thing: it's expensive to do this stuff. Uh, I mean, I, we've talked on this show about rearchitecting your systems, about test automation, about uh, you know learning a whole bunch of new skills. That's not cheap. That requires substantial investment, uh, and so if you're going to do that, you better be sure that you know you're going to get a return on it and so uh i anytime people start talking to me about this stuff i'm like well you better be clear why you're doing it yeah what's what's the value to the business of embarking on this journey um that is going to take you you know hopefully you'll get some big wins early on and and some some victories you can talk about but it, realistically for most enterprises it's a multi-year uh journey that's going to require substantial investment um and and so start with the value to the business what's it going to do for our customers what's it going to do for our business and make absolutely sure that you're actually tying what you're doing back to that at every level of the organization i mean one of the things we talk about in the book is the principle of mission command the idea that instead of kind of command and control you know giving people detailed orders on what to do instead the way that the military works in modern times um, is that you tell people the outcomes you want to achieve in, in detail, and then you let people get on with experimenting with ways to achieve that. And so that's the first thing you've got to start with. What are the outcomes we're trying to achieve um, for the for the organization and for our customers? And then everyone in the organization who's working on this stuff needs to be able to tie what they're doing right now back to something to do with one of those outcomes. Uh, and if if you can't do that, 
there's probably a communication problem uh, or maybe you're just not working on the right thing but everyone has to be very clear about that yeah yeah and and it's just a challenge to actually be speaking to those folks and well i feel like in software we're almost afraid to talk to the numbers you know that how much money does this actually make how are we going to move that needle like actually speaking to the value proposition of a business. It was like we've avoided it all of these years. Well, that's how software developers can get the attention of their managers. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's hard. Um, and, and yeah. And, and the problem is people focus on the wrong things. People focus on estimation and we want to know about costs. Um, so another of my favorite books in the last five years is how to measure anything by uh, Douglas Hubbard. And he did a bunch of work with business cases for IT projects. Uh, and what you can do is you can do sensitivity analysis. You can basically change the numbers in the spreadsheet and see if it changes the, the outcome you care about, which is, you know, life cycle profits or whatever. And what he found is that development costs have very low information value. You know, all this stuff we spend a ton of time on, like estimation, uh, detail planning, actually has very low information value. The two numbers that you care about are, is the project going to get cancelled and... When the project's delivered, how rapidly are people actually going to start using it? Uh, and those two numbers are really actually quite hard to know in advance. So instead, we spend a lot of effort on development costs because like estimation is a thing and we can all do it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's lots of fun. Many happy afternoons spent arguing over how long it's going to take to build the, the flip flop feature. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, you know, ultimately that's getting us nowhere. I'm, right. I'm still working on the laughometer over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a couple more. Nice. Hey, uh, Jez, where are you going to be lately? Where are you going to be soon? Uh, up here. I am going to be mainly on webinars. So I'm having a year off traveling all the time. Um, what? But I'm doing, I know, crazy talk, right? <laughs> um, but I am doing a bunch of webinars. If you go to my site, continuousdelivery.com, uh, you can see uh, all my upcoming stuff or at least by the time the show airs, I will have updated that. Um, and, and so doing lots of webinars, um, I will probably be at Velocity in Santa Clara. Um, and then, yeah, the second half of the year is, is yet yet to be planned. All right. Well, maybe we'll see you out there. I, that would be awesome. Yeah. Thanks for spending this time with us, man. I had a lot Thank, of fun. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 